one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. The UN has said that by 2030, the world across industries needs to radically slash emissions if we are to stand a chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change. As an industry, we need to make fewer things of higher quality that last longer. And that applies at the luxury level and it applies at the mass market level. The fashion industry needs to feel that fire and needs to get that urgency in terms of really doubling down on both existing sustainability initiatives as well as creating new ones that are going to make meaningful changes. Hi, this is Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion. Welcome to the BOF podcast. It's Friday, June 17th. This week, I'm pleased to share a conversation that I had with Sarah Kent, our chief sustainability correspondent, and Diana Lee, director of research and analysis at BOF Insights, about the BOF Sustainability Index 2022. Between the two of them, Sarah and Diana have overseen a massive expansion as this year we have doubled the scope of the index from 15 publicly traded companies to 30 of the biggest publicly traded companies in the fashion industry. Across more than 9,000 data points, six categories and months and months of research, we've been able to assess how our industry is making progress towards clear sustainability targets across a variety of different categories. So there's a lot to understand. Think of it as your crash course on the BOF Sustainability Index. 
If you want to download the full index, please have a look at the episode notes and also follow Sarah's new weekly sustainability briefing, which you can sign up for for free today. Here are Sarah Kent and Diana Lee on the BOF Sustainability Index 2022. So, Sarah and Diana, let me know first. So, you know, what was the ambition of the index this year? Why does the industry need this kind of tool? Sarah, I'll go to you first. It was actually your idea to create this index way back almost like two and a half years ago now. What are we learning from a tool like this? Yeah, I mean, so the reason why we had the idea to do this in the first place was that I was writing about sustainability at BOF and increasingly companies were coming out with big ambitious things that they wanted to do. But it was really hard to understand what progress was being made towards those targets or also to compare how what one company was saying it wanted to do stacked up against what another company was doing and really understand it's great that we've got a capsule collection made from recycled materials or that there is a 2050 goal for carbon neutrality. But understanding what was happening on the ground in practice to demonstrate progress was really, really difficult. So we wanted to take the time to take a deeper dive into what companies we're doing to enable us to benchmark progress, make like-for-like comparisons, and really understand if we as an industry are setting these really very ambitious goals to improve how we operate from the standpoint of responsibility, how are we doing on that? And where are the opportunities to do better and the challenges that still remain? So, So that was the goal. And I think that's a really, really important thing to look at, especially given that If you look at this decade, it's a really important moment to make a number of changes if we are to meet global climate goals. So it's very important that the industry acts now. And hopefully this is a useful tool for everyone to look at to understand where we're at and where more action needs to be taken. Well, Sarah, what happens if we don't meet these goals? From a climate standpoint, the way we frame this is we're looking at the fact that the UN has said that by 2030, the world across industries needs to radically slash emissions if we are to stand a chance of avoiding catastrophic climate change. So from the biggest picture, for the industry to do its part to stave off real disaster, we need to take these steps. And then from a more philosophical standpoint, if you look at the way consumer culture is diverting, where there's a real expectation on companies that they stand behind the values they are promoting in the way they operate. And I think we all want to be part of an industry that is operating ethically and treating the people who work in its supply chain in a way that is responsible and avoiding labor abuses. I think it's harder to sort of say there will be a massive disaster if that doesn't happen by 2030, but it shouldn't have to have that kind of a stop. You know, it should just be a baseline. I'm going to turn it over to Diana. We made some changes to the index this year. Can you talk a little bit about how we collected the data, what changed versus last year, and how you analyzed and crunched the data to come up with the findings? Sure, absolutely. And and Sarah will definitely have something to add about this as she spearheaded the research stage in terms of gathering the various data points. And she led our 
fierce team of researchers to pour over thousands of documents to be able to look at the public disclosures. So one thing to note about the 30 companies that are contained within the index this year is that they are all publicly listed and that public disclosures is very important for us to be able to see what is actually being reported and to be able to measure that on an objective footing. Because if you think about it, disclosures can be very inconsistent. And that really gets to the heart of what Sarah was just saying, which is that it's difficult for people to make an apples to apples comparison. So that's why our index is coming in. And so we spent months actually gathering the different data points. We had over 200 metrics that were applied to all 30 of the different companies. And essentially, these were binary metrics. So either there's a yes or a no response. And the yes is if a company fulfilled that criteria and a no is if it didn't. And so the calculation for the company is essentially how many yeses there were over the total number of questions. And we looked at six sustainability categories, which we'll go into a little bit more detail later on. But kind of the way to think about this is that we looked at those scores across all six of those categories, and that's how we derived an overall index score. So Sarah, why don't you add to that? You were obviously very involved in the creation of the index last year and this year. If you're going to summarize like super high level findings for people, what did we learn this year that we didn't know last year? So what we found is you have a small number of companies who, generally speaking, are the largest companies that are therefore highest profile and face the most scrutiny, who are showing signs of incremental progress. But by expanding the number of companies we looked at from 15 to 30, in most cases, almost across the board, we found outcomes were worse. So companies that face a little bit less scrutiny or coming under a little bit less attention are really engaging in a very, very limited way with these topics at all. And there were several areas where we found multiple companies scored no points whatsoever. So they're just disclosing nothing to indicate that they are looking at that particular issue. To be clear, so when a company scores zero, it doesn't necessarily mean they're doing nothing. It means they're disclosing nothing. Is that right? Yes, this is all based on public disclosure. So that it means that as an individual interested in the company, whether you are a consumer who wants to understand, you know, I have certain values that I want to consume in line with. So let me understand if this company is in line with my values. Or if you are like us, a media company interested in understanding what a company is doing or a potential business partner, there is no public information that would enable you to understand what the company is doing in that space. They may be doing other stuff behind the scenes, but it's not transparent. Okay. Well, before we continue in the Q&A, I think maybe Diana would be helpful to just get, for those people who haven't had a chance yet to download and read all the information, to get a sense of the overall findings from the report. So maybe you could just walk us through those findings now. Absolutely. So thank you again for joining us to our session today and welcome to looking at a short extract from our 2022 Sustainability Index report. And so this is our second edition. We're very proud of it. And it is also the first time that this report falls under the BOF Insights umbrella. So for those of you that are joining us today, I assume that you're very familiar with the business of fashion, but you might be less familiar with BOF Insights because it is a relatively new team. It's only about a year old. And essentially with BOF Insights, we try to arm business and creative and fashion leaders with the data that they need in order to make better decisions. And so our research tends to be much more quantitatively driven and longer form than our journalism. And this is why the format this year for the 2022 edition of the Sustainability Index will look so different from what you may have seen from the inaugural edition last year. So with all that being said, we will dig into some of those high-level findings. 
All right. So we mentioned this a little bit earlier, but this really was a Herculean effort. It took a team of researchers over a course of months to be able to pour together over all of the public disclosures for those 30 different companies. So as we mentioned a little bit earlier, we have doubled the scope from 15 companies last year to 30 companies in this year's sustainability index. And these were the 30 largest publicly listed companies in the fashion industry. So we relied wholly on public disclosures. And they roughly split into equal contributions to the annual revenue. So in total, these 30 companies were basically about 340 billion U.S. dollars in annual revenues. And this was evenly split pretty much across luxury, high street, as well as sportswear. And then we will move on now just to give you a little bit more detail about the actual structure of the report. So we've alluded to the sustainability categories. So that is essentially our six categories, which are emissions, transparency, water and chemicals, materials, workers' rights, and waste. And there are essentially 16 targets that sit underneath these six categories. And so you can look into this in more detail in the full report, but I'll give you a little bit of a teaser, which is essentially that there is one target that sits under emissions, and that's basically about reducing your absolute greenhouse gas emissions by 45% by 2030, whereas there are two targets that sit underneath transparency, and that is really about having full traceability across the supply chain by the end of 2022, as well as publicly disclosing environmental and social impacts across the supply chain also by 2022. And then if we keep going down a layer, so from categories to targets to the binary metrics, this is what I was talking to Emron a little bit about earlier in the session, which is just about how we actually calculated the score for the companies. So there are 200 questions that were either yes or no responses. And so over the course of our research, we could gather whether a company actually fulfilled the criteria to obtain a yes. And so essentially a company would gain a point if they scored a yes. And so this is how we calculated the scores for all the different categories. And the average of those categories is how we arrived at a company score. So that's just to give you a little bit of background. And I will also talk a little bit about the context. So very early on in the session, Sarah talked about how important 2030 is as a deadline. So obviously it's the end of the decade and it's also the deadline for the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And we really aligned our sustainability index to those UN SDGs, so the Sustainable Development Goals. And essentially we only have about eight years left to achieve that set of sustainability goals. And so you can also view our index as a tracker and as a proxy for the overall fashion industry in terms of how well we are doing in terms of transforming sustainable business practices in order to be able to hit those 2030 milestones. And you can see is that overall our score is um, it's, it's a pretty poor showing across the 30 companies. So they only achieved a score of 28 out of a total possible number of 100 points. And so the overall takeaway is that this is progress that is much too slow and it's really endangering the 2030 goals. And it's really going to be incumbent on the fashion industry to meaningfully engage with sustainability goals. Okay. One of the nuances of the 2022 Sustainability Index is that we expanded our scope from 15 companies to 30 companies. And so what that means is that the 2021 Sustainability Index isn't a direct comparison to the 2022 index because you've doubled the number of companies. So the nuance to this is that we actually did the analysis of all 30 companies within the 2022 index, and we also split it into its constituent parts. So we looked at the original cohort that makes up basically 15 companies that were also a part 
at the 2021 index. And we also have a separate cohort, which is looking at just the 15 new companies that were added. And Sarah mentioned this a little bit earlier at the beginning of the presentation, but essentially there was a pattern that was very clear to us and, and, and emerged, which essentially is that there is a big disparity between the companies that were part of the original cohort versus the companies that were newly added this year. And this is because, again, of the way in which we chose our companies that appeared in the sustainability index. So we essentially went down the list of the companies in terms of their size of annual revenues. And so in the 2021 index, those were the biggest companies. And this year, when we added our 15 new companies, we went a tier down in terms of annual revenues. And so Sarah mentioned that we have a hypothesis that it's very likely that this new rung of companies have been able to escape some of the scrutiny that has been applied very heavily by the public and by other stakeholders to those front runners or they may just have fewer resources that they can actually allocate to sustainability objectives. So there are a number of different hypotheses, but you can see that there's a very clear performance difference where in that overall score of 28, when we break it out, the score for the original cohort is 36 points, whereas for the new additions, the score that they obtain is only 20. So there's a 16 point gap between the two. We have a bit more information in terms of key statistics. So we can see that the highest score was 49, and that was achieved by Puma. The most improved company, meaning that it was both in the 2021 index as well as in the 2022 index, was fast retailing, and that company increased by 11 points. And then finally, we had four companies that beat the newcomer trend. So this is what we're talking about, where the new additions tended to do worse than the companies that were part of the original cohort. And in this case, these four newcomers beat the trend, and so they all continued to rank in the top half of the 2022 index. And those four companies were Burberry, which came in fifth, Lululemon, which came in 11th, Next, which was 13th, and Ralph Lauren, which was 15th. And so this, I hope, will just drive home the point that the progress is much too slow. And so if we continue to grow at that pace over the next eight years until 2030, it would be impossible to fulfill our 2030 goals. So there's quite the shortfall. And this is really why the fashion industry needs to feel that fire and needs to get that urgency in terms of really doubling down on both existing sustainability initiatives, as well as creating new ones that are going to make meaningful changes. Going on to the six sustainability categories, which are our impact categories. Emissions was the highest at 38 points, and then waste was the lowest at 19 points. There is much room for improvement across every single one of these categories. So with all of our 200 metrics applied across 30 companies with two years of data for some of them, we ended up with over 9,000 data points. And so there's a lot more to be had from the whole report. So I hope that all of you will take the time to actually peruse the full report in detail. Thank you so much, Diana. That was like a really quick whistle-stop tour through the report. But let's move on to get a bit more of a deep dive into the index. You know, Sarah, the results are kind of depressing, if I'm honest. You know, when I look at it, we have the industry constantly talking about sustainability. It's in all the headlines. I mean, even at BOF, we must receive like 10 press releases a day that use the word sustainability or responsibility or environmentally conscious. Why is the pace of progress so slow? That's a really complicated question. And I think there's lots of different elements to it. It's easy to give a really negative throwaway answer, which is just, you know, this is all just marketing and companies are talking about it because they know that it's a compelling way to draw in consumers now, but they're not really acting behind it. I think it's much more complicated than that. What we're talking about is really hard. It's, you know, we're companies to really achieve the targets we set, which which are very ambitious ones, 
we're talking about real systems change. And that doesn't happen overnight. It's not easy and it's not linear. So although we're seeing only incremental progress, the fact that we're seeing progress is significant. And, you know, I applaud the companies that are making moves and talking about what they are doing. Fundamentally, some of the major stumbling blocks are that this needs money. It needs money that will go into things that will likely pay off long term, but may not pay dividends near term and will not probably do it at an individual level. So it requires investment, collaboration and cooperation on a scale that is really, really hard to coordinate as an individual company or even from an industry level. In short, this is really hard. And that's part of the reason why we're not seeing so much progress. So are you optimistic? Yes, I am actually. I think there are a number of things that we're seeing continue to shift that could be quite transformative. As part of this report, we've identified five key themes that we think are going to shape the landscape over the next 12 to 18 months, bearing in mind this is very long term as a whole. But one of them is the role of regulation. And I think that having lawmakers step in with clear policies and incentives to give companies a direction of travel can really unlock some of the change that we're looking for. So in the EU in particular, at the moment, there is a very big series of policy coming through the pipeline specifically focused on the textile industry that is intended to encourage a more circular industry that is intended to create more robust standards for what it means to say they're operating sustainably. It's not a silver bullet. It's not going to change everything overnight, but I do think it will enable a lot more transformation than we've seen so far. And it will require companies that perhaps have not been engaging to do so. So it will create a more level playing field as well. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. 
Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewelry that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts, and not just any experts, specialized experts. Real people who love this stuff, with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says authenticity guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realize that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Understood. Well, why don't we dive into some of the categories? Like, where are we seeing the kind of progress we need to see? There were two categories that did reach the 30s. And so that was emissions number one and transparency number two. When we added the new rung of companies, the 15 new additions, that actually dragged down the score across the board for every category with the exception of emissions. I think what is really notable about emissions is that there is a relatively clear framework and guidance. And so that is why companies have actually been able to follow that kind of guidance in terms of target setting. So on one hand, that's good because a lot of the points have been obtained for target setting, but at the same time, there's the next step, which is then reporting on the results. And that is really where I think that next push needs to come from the companies when it comes from emissions and around the disclosure. And then on transparency, I just wanted to say that this is our second best category in terms of performance. And part of that is actually related to emissions, because with transparency, it's about disclosure around a variety of topics from emissions to water to chemicals and the like. And honestly, a lot of the performance that was done very well within transparency is actually related to emissions. And so there's sort of a kind of halo effect as well on transparency because of how well companies have been doing on emissions. At the same time, there still remain substantial gaps in performance because companies are not doing the same when it comes to disclosure and traceability when it comes to the other sustainability topics like water and chemicals and waste. And so within that, there's very mixed performance. So that's how I would summarize emissions and transparency. And and Sarah, I'm sure you'll have a lot more to add as well. Yeah, I I think what we're seeing, and that's reflected in what you just said, Dan, it's pretty clear now what kind of target companies need to be setting and the goals they need to be moving towards. And that's why we're seeing a lot of progress, which is Not nothing, because I think three or four years ago, you would not have seen this level of engagement with the issues at all. However, what it is really important to start to see in a much more robust manner is companies moving beyond target setting to real action. And that is a really open question mark as to the extent to which we'll see that. As I said, I don't think it's going to be linear. There will be areas where there are more obvious steps that you could take now, and there will be areas where new technologies are going to be needed to really solve this. But that will be the big question mark for next year. Are we going to see companies really starting to move the needle and taking measurable and demonstrable steps? 
the other point, which is that even with emissions, it feels that companies are sometimes taking the easy route, which is they're setting targets when it comes to their emissions from their own supply chains. But we all know that the majority of fashion companies do not own their factories. And so that is a level beyond them. And so that's your scope three emissions. And so if we look at the target setting, more than two thirds of companies have set targets when it comes to emissions from their own supply chain. However, that drops down to less than half when it comes to the overall emissions from the rest of the value chain. So companies need to rise to the occasion and do what's hard, not just what's easy in the low hanging fruit. We've talked a little bit about the areas where in transparency and emissions, there's more progress. It's quite concerning to see some of the areas where the industry is vastly underperforming, like waste and workers' rights. What are the blockers there? First, let's talk about waste, Sarah, because that's you know traditionally been like the worst performing category. Why is it so poor? I think part of it is that waste is actually an area that the industry is quite new to addressing. It's really only in the last couple of years that we started to have the phrase circularity emerge as a buzzword. And that's really attached to exciting new models like resale e-commerce and rental that have sprung up and really got people very excited. And that is something that the industry can point to and get excited about because there are clear ways to make money through them. And circularity then becomes this very nice buzzword that you can use to sort of say, hey, I want to engage with resale and rental and I'm going to create a circular business model and I'm dealing with my impact because clothes are going to be going through the system in a closed loop rather than ending up in landfill. But the reality is that for most traditional brands, those types of models are ones they're just beginning to experiment with if they are dabbling at all. It's something they're looking at so that the, the beginning of the journey there. And really, those are only one part of a much bigger conversation around the issue fashion faces when it comes to waste, both in terms of the volume of clothes we're producing and the waste created the production phase, and then what happens to the clothes at end of life. And really, we don't have good solutions to either of those issues yet. And it really gets at the heart of this fundamental tension that exists within any conversation about fashion and sustainability, which, which comes down to the purpose of a fashion company is to sell things to people. And if the industry is really going to operate more sustainably, probably it needs to make fewer things. And so waste is this actually really, really tricky issue to grapple with. Yeah, I mean, it's this conversation I had with Francois-Henri Pinault last year around mm. the time, Sarah, where I asked him this question and said, you know, you're a publicly traded company, as every company in our index is, by the way. They're measured on growth, growth of revenue and growth in profit. And I said, by definition, every single product you create has an impact. And as an industry, we're focusing on marketing to people to consume more things and driving a system of overproduction, which leads to excess amounts of waste. Are there smarter ways for companies to think about meeting their financial goals and the expectations of the market and doing things in a way that's less wasteful, more targeted? Or is this system that we're operating in just fundamentally an unsustainable system? I mean, it's a really philosophical question. I'm sure everyone has slightly different views on this. I think fundamentally from a system point of view, it is unsustainable. But I also think that we don't have to be ascetics. We don't have to be perfectionists about this. We have to get better and we have to keep getting better and keep pushing to get better. And business models like resale or rental, where instead of creating a new product, you can generate 
financial gain from reusing something that's already in the system, hold out one really promising route towards continuing to generate value in a traditional shareholder way, whilst also using fewer virgin resources. There are also new technologies that there's a lot of investment going into that will enable us to turn old clothes into raw materials that could be used again. So once more, we're taking less virgin resource from the planet to create new things, which is another sign of progress. And I think there is an element of this that is cultural and and finding ways to engage with your customer base or your community that is not necessarily about consumption. It's really interesting in some of the conversations we have outside of this aspect of sustainability in the industry that just looks at how the fashion model is changing to become much more about creating a brand that transcends just what is being sold to create an idea of a community and creating value for that community. And I think that also holds a lot of opportunity and value to build something that is not just about extracting resources and selling stuff. Yeah, I mean, and and by the way, what Mr. Pino said to me was something that I found it's been kind of resonating in my head now for about a year, which is actually as an industry, we need to make fewer things of higher quality that last longer. And that applies at the luxury level and it applies at the mass market level. You know, and we see that across the board in our index, the mass market companies in, in sportswear or high street and the luxury companies, they're all facing these problems. There's not a really big difference between them. So what about workers' rights, Sarah? This is the other low-performing category where you know, consistently we've seen reports in the media about factories with poor conditions. During the pandemic, we saw luxury workers creating like highly, highly desirable artisanal products in India, losing their jobs. I mean, what's the update on workers' rights? So also one of the worst performing areas of the index, which is really disheartening because this is a topic that has been a big focus for the industry for decades, long before there was the awareness we have now around environmental issues. Fashion was facing a lot of criticism for poor working conditions in its supply chain and really not a huge amount seems to have changed. We still are relying on a system of self-regulation essentially to manage supply chains that are very fragmented and therefore difficult to oversee. And that enables workers' abuses to go undetected. And and similarly, and I think this really is the crux of the fundamental issue, there is a disconnect between the financial motivations of brands who want to get the best product at the lowest price and, and the reality of the price that is needed to secure good working conditions and fair wages for people within the supply chain. And that has not been resolved. Diana, anything to add there? Yeah, what was interesting as well about the workers' right category is that it actually had one of the worst performing targets. And so the worst performing target reached an average score of only 10, and that was around equitable purchasing practices. And that was all about ensuring ethical working conditions, which is, again, I think very surprising because if you think about just the last two years with the pandemic, there has been more focus on things like living conditions and ensuring that workers were safe and protected. And yet when we look at the evidence that this was the worst performing score. Okay. What role do companies have to play in terms of educating the customer to buy better? I think it's a big responsibility for the industry. And I think that's a difficult one because there is a fundamental tension as well 
between that level of education and perhaps the more traditional form of marketing that the industry would engage in, which is just to encourage people to buy a tool. So it's encouraging to see that companies are putting more effort into explaining different sustainability initiatives. I think that it shouldn't just fall to companies to do this work, though. That, again, goes back to this idea of self-governance or self-regulation. There has to be, I think, more critical parties looking at what is going on and assessing that from an independent standpoint rather than just allowing the companies to present what they're doing. We're seeing amazing consumer activism taking place now. I think that's fantastic. That's really moving the needle in terms of the conversation. We're seeing more reporting in the media around different things that's going on within fashion industry and what could or could not constitute sustainability. That's fantastic. Regulation will help too. And then also the way companies talk to consumers. I think it's all of these things. A lot of people are asking about the Hig Index, Sarah. And you know, there's obviously been a controversy around the accuracy of that, especially when it relates to materials. So someone's asking, what are your criteria for materials? Curious to what materials you would consider as more sustainable than others as it is super complex. I think the Hig index, for example, if I recall correctly, considers some kinds of polyester as sustainable, even though their polyester is created from fossil fuels, which are obviously damaging to the planet. I mean, how do we get around this materials question? So it's a really interesting question. I think it's one that there's a really healthy debate going on about right now that is driving everyone in a much better direction. What HIG does is it's a methodology. It uses life cycle analyses to understand the impact of different materials and what the LCAs have found because of the way their methodology works, that in some cases, polyester may have a better LCA score than some natural fibers, which is surprising to many because polyester is obviously based off, off of fossil fuel, which is oil. And it speaks to some of the complexity around all of this conversation, because what is the appropriate framework to measure good? And what methodology should we be using? I'm not, I'm not going to get into HIG right now, but that's sort of just to frame this conversation. So the way we um, have approached this is we're not creating an assessment of whether a specific material is good or bad. We have three targets relating to materials. The first just asks whether companies are taking steps to source what are called preferred materials by next year. So it's very near term. And preferred materials we are defining as any kind of material that has been certified by an external body to be better than the conventional version. So anything like an organic cotton or a BCI cotton or a certified recycled polyester would fit within that criteria. And the goal there is just to measure whether companies are starting to make progress on this journey of finding ways to replace conventional materials with ones that have a lower impact on the planet. We then have two longer term, more ambitious targets. The first being a goal for companies to transform their entire natural raw material supply chain to regenerative practices. So the idea being that over the course of the next decade, companies will move from buying whatever natural fibers they are buying just on the market and really drilling down into their supply chain to understand that if they are buying cotton, it is from a farm that has been managed responsibly from an environmental and social standpoint, and that is not only doing less harm to the soil and biodiversity health, but actually having a positive impact. That is the goal. And the third target is around polyester. And so if you are still going to use synthetic fibers, the goal is that they will be fully circular by 2030. So that's how we're approaching it. It's less sort of looking at individual fibers that companies are using and saying this fiber is good and this fiber is bad and more 
from a holistic standpoint of what is the end goal that we would like to get to. Sarah, what about mycelium? I think mycelium is a really interesting, potentially revolutionary material. We're a long way from getting to the scale where it could revolutionize the industry yet. I think at the moment, it's still at sort of the disruptive force level. I think there's also a conversation that is going to continue happening around many of these new innovations as to what their impact are. So many of the mycelium products that we're seeing come to market do still contain some elements of plastic, not all of them. But this is the big challenge that new material alternatives still need to overcome, that in many cases to ensure quality and aesthetic and durability, you need to add some polymer materials to them still. So they're not often fully natural. And I think there's also a nuance around the obvious positive benefits of embracing new innovations, but also the importance of ensuring a just transition where we're not destroying livelihoods and jobs in our eagerness to jump onto an exciting new product. Another theme that keeps coming up is this role of like the volume of products that companies make or the overproduction that some of these companies engage in. Why is that not part of our consideration set here? Or is it even accurate to say that we haven't considered that? So we don't address it directly asking our companies reducing the volume of products that they manufacture. That is a really interesting question that we should definitely consider incorporating for the future. Honestly, and I would need to double check this, either none or only a very small number of the companies disclose their production volumes. So the best you can look at as a proxy is revenue numbers, but that's not a good proxy because obviously you're looking at companies with vastly different price points. So it doesn't tell you a lot about production volume. So it's partly just a fact that that is not an easily accessible data point. Yeah, because if LVMH, for example, disclosed, everyone thinks of LVMH as a luxury company, but if then they disclose that they make millions of bags every year, which is probably right, yeah, it becomes very clear that this is a mass production company. It's luxury insofar that price point is luxury and the materials are luxurious and it's made in a way that delivers a higher level of quality than something you might get in a Zara store. But it really brings home the fact that these are the 30 largest publicly traded companies in the world, and they're all operating at a scale which is enormous, right? And so it's an interesting point. And before we conclude, maybe Diana, Sarah, any final thoughts on you know where you think the levers for action are? You know, where where should the industry go from here? Diana, let's start with you. In terms of overall takeaways, well, it, I hope we've hammered home the point now that there is a significant amounts of progress that have yet to be made and really how in order to reach the 2030 goals, we need to significantly increase that pace of progress because right now that incremental progress we see of plus five points between the companies that were part of the 2021 index and that also appeared this year, that's not enough. We need better data. We need to be able to understand what is happening in order to really understand where the opportunities to do better lie. That doesn't mean that without full transparency, we shouldn't act. We absolutely should. But that needs to continue to be a focus. We need stronger partnerships between the different parts of the supply chain within the industry to enable some of the challenges we've been talking about around workers' rights to be unraveled. We, we need 
real focus on pricing so that companies are being responsible in the way they buy from others within the industry. And we need more money going into the really a lot of this comes down to money. There needs to be real investment behind these goals that companies are setting to enable them to reach them. And if that doesn't happen, it's nothing's gonna change. Okay, well, this is only the second year of what I hope will be a regular annual index for BOF. Um, Sarah and Diana, thank you so much. The BOF podcast is edited and produced by Emma Clark, Kate Vartan, and Eric Bria in the BOF studio team. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person, too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX. Luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.